All right, if you open up your Bible, like I said, to Hebrews chapter 13, that's where we're going to be at this morning, finishing our study through the book of Hebrews um, and closing this this book out. Um, Next um, uh, uh, book we're going into is going to be the book of Galatians, so if you want to read ahead, please do so. Um, I think the book of Galatians is a um, great book to go into, especially after our study through the book of Hebrews. Um, I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll get right into it. Father, thank you um, for Sean and his wife coming, Father, to share with us about the Eve for Life um, uh, Gap Year program, the initiative, Lord, that you've created there as a ministry of Rocky Mountain Calvary Chapel. We're grateful that one of our own, Zoe, has been able to go and and participate and grow in a relationship with you and to be established in you. And we pray for the rest of the team that is still out there abroad, Lord, and we know they'll be coming back in a week, so we pray for their safe travels and for the two weeks of debriefing as they come to a, a closure of this time of their life. And Lord, may the foundation that's been built and the, and the stones that have been laid, spiritually speaking, in their lives, Lord, carry them through with great direction for um, what you have for their lives. And Lord, we pray for those students, those young adults that are be going into this next year program. Lord, that you would lead them and guide them, that you would um, confirm to them and provide for them um, for um, this next coming year for, for where they should be and what they should be doing. And uh, for Sean and the rest of his staff that um, ministers to these kids and travels all around with them, we pray for wisdom, pray for discernment. Lord, we pray for uh, empowering by your Holy Spirit that the, the work would be done through your might and not through their strength. Um, we thank you for them. And for our time in your word today, um, pray you would teach us. I pray, God, that you would make truth known to us, Lord, that as we receive truth, that um, we would stand in it, that we would stand for the truth, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, from the inside out. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1, it says, chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. And I want to say that one verse, those four words, is a transitional statement from what we've been reading and building on since chapter 10, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But he says, he goes on, the author, and says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Isn't that a cool thought? I mean, I think, I think it's a good thing to be hospitable and to entertain people. We'll, we'll talk about that. I like to do that. I'm, that's more of my, my gifting uh, in our marital relationship. But to think that maybe, maybe you've um, uh, had an encounter with an angel, that'd be kind of cool. Um, and so in verse 3, he says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. So there's a, a, a way, a, a message by which how we should remember those who are imprisoned, as if you're enchained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Again, that idea of we're one body, the body of Christ. We're, we're, we're individual members, but we make up one body together. And, and the idea behind that, right, when you hit your, your hand with a hammer, your thumb with a hammer, um, your thumb hurts, but your whole body kind of feels it, right? Uh, and so it's something that we're connected. There's a connection there in this instruction to remember. He goes on in verse 4 and says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, the marriage bed, undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Your conduct, your behavior, the way you live your life, right? Without covetousness. In, in contrast to that, he says, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is God speaking. And so we, because of what God has said, what God has promised, we may boldly say, 
Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember verse 7, those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Follow what? Follow the teachings of what's in God's word. And they say, consider the outcome of their conduct. Look at their life. Examine them. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in verse 9, so do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. There's a distinction being made here again between the Levitical priesthood, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, those who serve in it, and us. They have an altar which they serve where they serve up works. They don't have a right to eat at our altar. We have a different altar. It says, for in verse 11, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, again on the Day of Atonement, and they're burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus, in the same way, our atoning sacrifice, that he might sanctify the people, us, with his own blood, he also suffered outside the gates. Therefore, let us go forth to him. Where is he? Outside of the camp, bearing his reproach, sharing, in other words, in his sufferings. For here we have no continuing city. There's no home for us here, but we seek the one to come, the eternal home, the eternal sanctuary where Christ lives. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do so and to share. <clears throat> do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And then in verses 20, if we get to it through 25, is just the closing thoughts and, and making some statements here. So um, as we read through this last chapter of Hebrews, if you followed along with me, you might get the impression, we might get the impression that the writer has... Uh, a bunch of miscellaneous thoughts and ideas to discuss. And he just kind of saved them to the end. And so he's just kind of, in a sense, maybe vomiting out there and, and think about this and think about this. And oh yeah, maybe this. And, and oh yeah, don't forget that. And, and there are some, some, in the last half of this chapter, there are some final instructions like this that the author makes to us to conclude his letter. But listen, what we have read is intentional in its thought, it's intentional in its ideas, and there is a thread that flows all the way through it that is connected to what we've been studying through since chapter 10, verse 24, we are told, where we are told that the just shall live by faith. And we've been looking at the application part of that through chapters 11 and on in through chapter 12, and when we take the context of what we've already looked at and lay it alongside chapter 13, meaning chapters 11 and chapters 12, we see a very familiar biblical message being developed for us. Remember, back in chapter 11, the main focus of chapter 11 was on faith, right? There's the definition of faith. Faith is the evidence 
that chapter begins with, right? And, and, and from there, there is these examples of, of the men and women of the Old Testament who lived their lives according to faith, the just. And so chapter 11 was, was on faith, how the just live by faith, the definition of faith, and how ultimately we, by their example, see that we too, who are justified through our faith in Jesus Christ, shall live by faith. We have life according to our faith. And then in chapter 12, the main focus was on hope, where we received the encouragement at the beginning of chapter 12 to endure, right? To persevere, to be steadfast, to continue on and to the end as we live by faith so that or in order that we might take possession of the hope that lies ahead. Literally, the reward that Christ has won for us through his own death upon the cross. And so in order to complete this familiar New Testament message, the the writer now concludes this letter, closes this book, and draws our attention and our thoughts to the single word that threads through this whole chapter, and it's the word love. And the message of faith, chapter 11, the message of hope, chapter 12, and now the message of love here in chapter 13, that same message, faith, hope, and love, is carried throughout many of the New Testament letters, and this is because these three Christian virtues, if we wish to identify them or put them in a category, these three things always work in unison for a believer. And this is because, hear this, all that we do as followers of Jesus Christ, all that we do as followers of Jesus Christ, and all that motivates us as followers of Jesus Christ, as we live by faith, must be from and with that foundation of love. For without love, the Bible makes it clear, right? There's no profit. What is faith? What is hope? What is anything involved in that in regards to any area or avenue of our life if there is not love as a foundation and as the motive? Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, there's 13 verses. There's a lot of them here, but listen to what he says. He says, and though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become an annoying, clanging instrument. It's not like someone who knows how to do this. It's just someone who is banging things. I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have, think about this, all these wonderful things, I have the gift of prophecy. And even if I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith, all faith, this kind of faith, so that I could even remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And he, gets, he goes on to tell us about what true love is, God's kind of love, biblical love, the love we're called to. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in the truth. Remember that. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. And then he goes on to say, but, but listen, where there are prophecies... They will fail. 
Where there are tongues, this angelic gifting of speaking in, in, in angelic language, he says that's going to cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Speaking of these different gifts, for we know in part and, and prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, speaking of Jesus Christ, who is perfect, then that which is in part will be done away with. And then he gives us this, this, this analogy, if you will, to think about. He says, man, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but now, when I became a man, I put away childish things. So for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, and now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known, and now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is is love. And we should ask ourselves, why? Why is the greatest of these out of faith, hope, and love? Because they're powerful Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. Why is the greatest of these love? And I think the answer is given to us by the same author, the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, where he writes and says this, but above all things, put on love. And he says this, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. And so the greatest of these is love because it's the bond. And the word for bond is the Greek word sundemos. <clears throat> and, and, and it refers to a band that binds something together in a bundle. And we might imagine like a rubber band or something like that, but it's, it's more organic than that. In the, in, the, in the Greek definition, it refers more to organic material like a ligament that binds a muscle group together so that it works in an effective way. It binds the muscle together and keeps it attached so that it will work in the way that it's designed to do. And so in regards to faith and hope, we see that love acts as a bond as a band, as a ligament, a kind of glue or a bond that binds faith and hope together. In our lives, why? For the perfect result. For the perfect result. It is the bond of perfection. perfection. And when we look at our faith, or when we're, as we've been studying through the book of Hebrews, when we are looking to live our lives, the just, right? By faith, the first virtue in this threefold message, right? Faith, we have to understand that faith only works in the way that God intends it to. In our lives and through our lives, it only works when love is not only the foundation for what we do, but when it's the motivation for what we do. And this is why we're told in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, meaning the Jews, those who keep the law or adhere to the law, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Doesn't in itself, it doesn't, doesn't equate either side of the coin. He says, What avails is faith working through love. Faith working through love. In other words, Paul was saying this. He was saying, it does not matter if you are a circumcised Jew, ultimately, who keeps the law, um, any of the sacrificial system, uh, or an uncircumcised Christian who lives according to grace. It doesn't matter if your faith is apart from love. Because even a Christian who does not love, this is very convicting. Even a Christian who does not love 
is no different than any other religious person who does not love. For neither person, neither persons is beneficial in the hands of God or in the lives of others around them if their faith is not working through love. Literally, I love this, this way of putting it. Faith that bears the fruit of love. Does your faith bear the fruit of love? And the point is, is there can be no division between our doctrine, what we say we believe, and duty, how we live our lives. No, no division between God's revelation, what God makes known to us, and our responsibility. It's what James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith through my works. Where he says, let's not just be a hearer, but a doer as well. That's the idea. And these things always go together. Doctrine and duty. God's revelation and our responsibility to live it out. And this is why the writer presents these examples of faith in chapter 11 and then encourages us in chapter 12 to continue in our faith until we lay hold of the hope that has been set before us. And now here in verse thir- chapter 13, there's this duty, the Christian's reduty, duty and the responsibility to love in light of the doctrine, in light of the revelation to live by faith. Guys, I'm here to tell you this. The bottom line is, is, is love in these various avenues as outlined by chapter 13 should be evident in our lives if we are really truly living by faith and, 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 um, um, or walking by faith and not by sight. I listened to a podcast not too long ago, and it's not important who the podcast was. What was important is the, the um, person who was being interviewed in the podcast was Michael W. Smith. And if you're old like me, you probably remember Michael W. Smith. Um, he's a great Christian artist and musician. There was a time in his life when Billy Graham, uh, when he was doing crusades, he had a great desire to reach the youth. And um, he brought Michael W. Smith on tour with him as Billy Graham would go and do these evangelistic crusades that he's famous for. And there would be uh, an evening, it was a Wednesday evening, it was a um, uh, three-day evangelistic outreach that Billy Graham would do. And on the third day, it was for the youth. And he would have Michael W. Smith do the music. And one of the things that Michael W. Smith said is that uh, he was talking about Billy Graham and sharing stories, is he got to be with Billy Graham at the end of his life when, when Billy was preparing to go be with the Lord. And Michael W. Smith, would, he would come and he would sing songs and, and play music, uh, which comforted Billy Graham at the end of his life. And he said he got to pray for him. And the, the guy said, he said, what can you tell us about Billy? And, and what he said is, he said this, he said, Billy Graham loved people. He genuinely loved people. And I believe that. I never met him. I've, I've talked to people who have met him, people who have done evangelistic work with him, and, and, and that's true. And I think about people like Billy Graham and other people come to my mind about people who just genuinely love others. I think of Mother Teresa. Again, I never met her, but from what I've heard and what I imagine, and, and when you look at her life, I go, she was a woman who truly loved people. Truly and genuinely love people. Um, someone probably um, more dear to my heart and more I know in a personal way is, is my, my grandma who's passed away, my grandma Roe. She loved people. Genuinely, from her heart, she loved people. And when I think about 
what we read here in chapter 13 in this aspect of faith and hope and love and love being the bond of perfection, um, I've, been con- con- I've been just completely honest, I've been convicted. I've been convicted um, because I have to say, and maybe you find yourself in this spot with me too, I don't know, but um, I'm far from a Billy Graham. I'm far from a Mother Teresa in the way that I love people. And I've come to the point in my Christian walk where I know how to love people, and, and, and fortunately I have the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, and more times than not, what comes out in action is love. But I'll have to be completely honest that inside my heart, it doesn't always start there. Lots of times there's frustration, impatience, unforgiveness, bitterness, and I have, to, I have to work through those things. And, and, and when I read what I read here, um, it can be discouraging. But when I take the whole counsel of what we've read in the book of Hebrews, and what I want to bring for you is to let you know that for me, I'm in this process of continuing to be changed. And for you, you as well. And I think it's good to have outward behavior that examples love and to not be unloving in action but I think we should all desire to be like Jesus Christ who genuinely loves people from the inside out. And when I consider the whole counsel of the book of Hebrews, I'm encouraged because what we are told about Jesus and our relationship with him through faith is that he is the captain of our salvation. Do you remember that? He is the author, it says, and the finisher of our salvation. The author and the finisher. And we're told that he who has has begun a good work in us will complete it. He's faithful to complete it. And I am less like Sean today than I was yesterday and and hopefully more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. Jesus who loves people genuinely and perfectly. And so as we go through this, I think the hope that we have is to know that God's doing a good work in us. And as we continue to submit our lives to Him in the midst of the, the deficiencies and insufficiencies that we see in our ability to love people in genuine ways, that there can come a time in our life down the road as we continue to walk in faith with Jesus Christ, who we are justified by and being sanctified by through Him and the power of the Holy Spirit and through the working of His Word from the inside out, that there will come a time in our day when people will look back and go, Sean genuinely loved people from the inside out. And I pray that that would be the case for all of us. And as we look at this love and the string of it through this chapter 13, the the first avenue of love that we're directed to is our love for one another, the brethren, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters, our family members of God our Father and we together. It says here, let brotherly love continue. And this admonition, this admonition to let brotherly love continue was more than than this encouragement to, to keep doing something that the Hebrew believers were already doing. We here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel, I think we do a pretty good job of loving one another. And, and it would be like, hey guys, it, it would be, it's not like I would be standing here going, just keep loving one another. It's more than that when it says, let brotherly love continue. And what I mean by that is, is it was an admonition. Think about it like this. It was an admonition to let their love for one another, their love for their brothers and the sisters in the Lord, continue even when the brother and sister in the Lord was not being lovable. When when they did not want to show love to them. 
And when do we, we want to show love to people when they're being lovable to us, right? It's easy to love someone who is loving you, but when they're being unloving or when you're being sinned against, when, when they've let you down and failed you in these moments, the command is to let love continue. And it's given because the fact of the matter is whether it's intentional or not, there are times when our brothers and sisters in the Lord are going to offend us. There are times when we are going to sin against one another. And when this happens, it's never a good reason. It's never a right reason. It's never a justifiable reason for us to be unloving. Yet that's exactly what we do in the inside. We assess the person. We assess what's been done to us. And we go, well, maybe not. Unforgiveness, bitterness, a hard heart. We want to retaliate, or, or maybe we want to retaliate, we just go, I've had enough to do with that person. I'll just, you can come to church and sit over there, and I'll come to church and sit over here. And that may be allegoric in the sense that that may not apply exactly to the, your situation or your circumstances, but you get the, you get the, the specifics of this. And when this happens, it's, it's never a good reason to be unloving. It's never a reason, a justified reason to stop loving. In fact, listen, when these things happen, we must see them as an opportunity as those who are just to live by faith as love takes action in our lives. We must see them as an opportunity to let love continue. And the fact of the matter is, this is a very serious thing when we're, that we're talking about in regards to, to an avenue for love to be demonstrated because the Apostle John wrote about this in 1 John. And, he, and he, in addressing this loving your brother, he said in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, he says, we know is an evidence of our salvation. We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. We love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he says, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's very black and white according to what John says here. He says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. If you want to know how to love, look to Christ's example. It's sacrificial. It's a giving of yourself wholly, completely. It says that Jesus, while we were still in the midst of our sins, when we were enemies of Christ and enemies of the cross, he died for us. We didn't give him a reason to love us. He wasn't sitting back and go, oh, finally, they're being lovable, so now I will love them. He says, but whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, think about it, how does the love of God abide in him? Also, John goes on in chapter 4, and he gives it a little more attention, and he says in verses 20 and 21, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In this command we have from one another that he who loves God must also love his brother. So in light of this, we must ask, I think we have to, what is our faith worth? What is our faith worth if we do not have love or if we, let, if we do not let love continue 
for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I think we have to ask that in light of what we read because we can accurately conclude that our faith is not worth very much if what John says here is true. Verse 2, remember, says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember also the prisoners. Remember in this way as if you are chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. And the second verse points out the fact that our love, guys, needs to extend beyond our own Christian family. In other words, we're to reach out and we're to open up our lives by looking to show love to strangers, um, um, those who God brings into our lives outside of our immediate church family. And that can be other believers from other churches or in other places or even unbelievers alike. And the word that is used here that instructs us or kind of identifies for us how this is to be done is the word entertain, which is the Greek word um, phil on exie. And, and this Greek word also translates to the word hospitality, and it's used, used in many places in the New Testament. But the root definition of this Greek word simply means to love strangers. To love strangers. And the cultural idea at the time was as, a, as someone was traveling and making their way from city to city, um, um, the hospitable thing to do is if you came in contact with them was to welcome them into your home. As they were traveling, as they were journeying, and you give them a place to stay, and you would provide a, a meal for them as they traveled on to their final destination. And even though this is not the way things are done in our culture here today, it's safe to say that the spiritual application of this remains the same because we too are strangers, foreigners, the Bible says. Pilgrims who are traveling through. And so we should see that everybody is on, is on a spiritual journey of some kind. And as we make our way through this life, which, are, which is temporary, and, and as we head to our, our final destination, we know that it is eternal. And so we should show hospitality to strangers, to people who are spiritually journeying, because we do not know um, where they are all at. And when we take the opportunity to show them love, we take the opportunity to enter into their lives and show them Jesus. To help them along as they travel through this temporary life and on to the eternal. And this call to love strangers is so important. Think about this in light of the definition of love that we read in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's important because this kind of love does two specific things. And the first is this, is that loving strangers takes us out of our little bubble that we all feel safe in and challenges us to go beyond what we feel to be comfortable. It's one thing to um, show love and, um, to someone we know, but it's another degree of vulnerability to really show love to a stranger, someone you have no vested interest in. And the other reason for why this call to love strangers is so important is because when you love a stranger, not always, but, but more than likely, the odds are is that you're not going to get anything back in return from them, right? 
if someone's traveling through, if they're just passing through your life and you show them love in this way, there's not an opportunity for that love to be reciprocated. And the point is, is when we are hospitable to strangers, it's an opportunity to love exactly like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says love is when it tells us that love's not self-seeking. It does not seek its own. And in verse 3, where we're told to remember the prisoners in this kind of way, as if we were changed to them, in this this here is a similar call to, to, to love strangers because, because the specific prisoners mentioned here were more than likely there were other Hebrew believers who had been imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. As we know that these Jewish believers were being persecuted for being followers of Jesus Christ. Some of them were even being locked up and some of them were being put to death for their faith in Christ. And we can, we can gather that this instruction is connected to that because at the end of this chapter, the author mentions Timothy who had been in prison and had been set free. But the call to love in this instance, think about it in more of a, of a, of a general sense in relationship to loving a stranger or, or, or loving the prisoner or, or one who is hurting. Because in this instance, this call for love is a call for sympathetic concern. Let me point this out to you a little bit differently. It's to think of others in light of how you might feel if you were the one in their situation. If you were the one that was traveling through. If you were the stranger. If you were in a, in a, in a, in a new church for the first time or visiting a church for the first time. And someone recognized you as a stranger and showed hospitality or love to you. Or someone who was... Uh, on the road that, 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 that is not familiar to your town or your community has just moved here. There's many opportunities for that, but you, you, you come to this conclusion, how would I feel if I was the one, and, and in regards to prisoners here, if I was the one that was being locked up, if I was the one that was mistreated? Here's the point. The point is this. When we consider others' problems, when we consider others' difficulties, when we consider others' challenges, by considering what it would be like if we were in their situation, our concern then will move from sympathy to the place of compassion. And compassion is where we take action in light of how we feel. You can be sympathetic and do nothing. But the moment that you take action, that's the difference between sympathy and compassion. And our concern for others that motivate us to action is love. As you know, Love is more than a feeling. It's not just a feeling. Love is an action. And sometimes there may not be much that we can do to practically meet the needs of others. But even if we give someone an ear to listen to, even if we give someone a smile, a kind look, or even if, like Jesus said, we give someone just a little food to eat, a little water to drink, it will not go unnoticed by our Father in heaven. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. He said, then the king will say to those on his right hand, and I want to let you know, this isn't speaking of a make-believe situation. This is speaking of a future truth that you and I, who believe in Jesus Christ, will have happen to us, where we are all be called followers of Jesus Christ to give an account for the way that we lived our lives. 
For with what God has entrusted to us, when we talk about how we long for those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that will happen in this scenario alongside these things. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did you, when did we, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of these, the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. A guy, again, guys, faith in action is love. What is faith without love? What is faith without an action? And in verse 4, we come to the marriage relationship with the same idea. It says marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And when we consider the statement about marriage being an honorable thing, it can be, I think, maybe difficult for us to reconcile this statement considering biblical marriage, and I stress that, biblical marriage is becoming less and less valued and less and less honored in our society as a whole. And I would even dare say, even within the church today, in fact, marriage today is dishonored by divorce, justified or not. Marriage is dishonored by those who live together outside of the marriage union, that covenant. Marriage is dishonored by adultery. Marriage is dishonored by neglect. And marriage is, is dishonored <clears throat> by those who want to redefine what God has said marriage is. However, biblical marriage is honorable. Marriage, the way that God has set it up, is to be desired. It's honorable. And these verses remind us of the love that needs to be shown in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And when this verse speaks about the marriage bed, it speaks about the physical intimacy that is only between to be between the husband and wife. And this is just one of the many places in the Bible where it teaches and celebrates sex or physical intimacy as an expression of marital love. And the Bible speaks powerfully, powerfully about the purposes of, of, of physical intimacy, telling, that it's, telling us that it's, it's for reproduction and for pleasure, but not just these things. And, and really what we see in light of this verse here that we read as we talk about love and action, we see that the main purpose for sex or physical intimacy within the marriage relationship is to bond together two into a one flesh relationship. And this is what gives, this is what gives marriage and sex meaning beyond just the pleasurable experience. And it is what God offers what the world cannot offer. And with this perspective, we see what God commands, what He does in regards to intimacy when God says the marriage bed is to be undefiled, meaning it is to be set apart only for one man and one woman who is committed to each other in the covenant relationship of marriage. 
And furthermore, this also explains why there's so much adversity in this area. And we who are Christians must recognize that there is a demonic strategy in play that wants to keep husbands and wives from interacting in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes about it. And he says, He says, Let the husband render or give to his wife the affection due to her. And, and same, likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So don't deprive one another except with a consent for time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that the enemy, Satan, does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And as we tie this all together, the fact of the matter is this. Physical intimacy, hear this, creates more than a physical oneness between a man and a woman. It also creates an emotional and a spiritual oneness. But this reference to love now, as we continue with this thread through this passage of Scripture, love in the marriage relationship in light of the reminder that God will judge those who fornicate and those who commit adultery, it points us to love as it pertains to faithfulness. Think about that. It points us to love in regards to faithfulness and commitment to the promises and the vows that we make to our spouse. In other words, love in the marriage relationship is not primarily demonstrated through physical intimacy, even though this is an aspect of marital love. Rather, love in the marriage relationship is demonstrated through loyalty. Love in the marriage relationship is demonstrated through purity. Love in the marriage relationship is demonstrated through the giving of oneself wholly, not holding anything back, completely giving one to the other person not holding anything back from your spouse. And so we come to verse 5 where it says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content for with such things you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And these are, I think there's a very interesting verses in light of this virtue of love that we've been called to as we live by faith contentment, covetousness. And what we're simply being told here is this, love what you've been given. That can be a hard thing. Love what you've been given. Be content with what you have. Be content with what God has provided. Learn contentment over covetousness. See, we all know how to covet. It doesn't say learn how to covet. We, we, we know how to do that from the beginning. Look at little kids. They want what someone else has. Give me that toy. They take it, even though they may have 10 toys in front of them. And the Greek word for covetousness is philoragos, and it literally means the love of money. So the thought or the idea here when we're told to let our conduct be without covetousness is to not long, to not lust, to not want for what you do not have. Because there's no contentment in striving to get the things that you do not have. Furthermore, think about this. How can you love what you've been given if you're always longing to love what you don't have? In fact, when it's a thing or even a relationship, because that's often what it is, if we are coveting what we do not have, we will, with all certainty, neglect what we have been given. Because we're not directing our attention, our resources, our affections, our efforts to get whatever it is that we're longing for, coveting after. 
And the encouragement to not covet, but to love what you have been given, being content with what you have, is given with a promise. And promises are hope. Is given literally with this hope that God said, he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And the point is this. God's faithfulness to provide for our needs and to help us in our time of need, it, it allows us to rest in him. It allows us to trust in him. It allows us to be content with what he's provided. And then and only then will we be able to truly love what God has given us. Then and only then we'll be able to truly love who God has given us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, chapters, verses 6 through 10, it says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, again, that word philaragos, covetousness, is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, think about this, that some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I'll be the first to admit that this admonition to be content it's an easy thing to read, but it's a hard thing to put into practice. But we must keep in mind that true contentment never comes from possessing many things. It comes when we rest our lives wholly on Jesus. I have been in many third world countries, and even less than that, where I have seen people with nothing and the opportunity of never getting anything be content with just the very basics that they have. A grass hut. Food. Deep, deep joy because of godliness and contentment. And the bottom line is our resting, is, 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 is our resting, our peace, our joy comes wholly upon being content with what Jesus provides. And that brings great gain. As we wrap this up this morning, we come to verses 7 through the end here on to 18. And in these final verses, there is this collection of closing thoughts. There is a collection of rapid-fire instructions for us to consider. And the first is this. Remember those who rule over you. And of course, this is speaking of spiritual leaders. Those, he says, who have spoken the Word of God. Those who have lived their lives accordingly. That you've seen it played out. Demonstrating the power of Jesus to be real as it impacts and transforms a person's life from the inside out. It's one of the reasons why I want to be honest and open with my own life from up front here with you, where I acknowledge my own weaknesses, but also go, there's hope for me in Jesus. There's hope for you in Jesus. And one of the interesting things about this admonition is that it reveals two things. It reveals that there is a need for godly leaders within the church. I think we would all say amen. But as we're called to follow these godly leaders, to submit to them, it also shows that there's a need for godly followers within the church. And ultimately, both of these things, godly leaders and godly followers, are accomplished within the church as we all follow after Jesus, who according to verse 8, by way of reminder, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in this passage of Scripture, Charles Spurgeon writes in his commentary, he simply says this, follow the master, not the pastor. And the fact of the matter is these spiritual leaders, they need to, all spiritual leaders, including myself, need to be dependable. But let me tell you this, 
I'm not unchanging, and we shouldn't expect our spiritual leaders who are human beings to be unchanging. Only Jesus Christ is unchanging. The best that any human can do, any of us can do, is be dependable. However, in this instance, in this light, a pastor, a spiritual leader must be unchanging in doctrine. And if a spiritual leader's doctrine is found, founded upon the truths of Jesus and the truths of God's Word, then it will be unchanging. And in light of verse 9, in light of this, verse 9 warns us, don't be carried away by various and strange doctrines, but to have your hearts completely established according to the grace of God. And I don't want to go back all over this, even though the author hits it again here, because of what we've been studying throughout the whole book of Hebrews. He talks about the priest who makes these sacrifices at the altars, which are our works. He says he doesn't have the right to worship at the same altar that you and I worship at. The worshiping of, of Jesus Christ at the altar, if you will, of the cross where his body was offered up as a sacrifice for us. Outside of the city gates, suffering reproach, cast out, rejected and despised. And yet we are called to identify with him and as we identify with him to see it as a blessing to give praise the author writes and here's the reason why is because it's the truth Jesus said I'm the way I'm the truth and I'm the life and again those three, three, three things are as united together just as much as faith hope and love and ultimately what we're being directed to when we come back to verse 10 and we see that it's a focus put on Jesus is we're again redirected to that Jesus is who we follow we don't assert anything we don't add anything listen to what the apostle Paul said to the the Galatians in chapter 3 the church there at Galatia he said in verses 1 through 4 he said oh foolish Galatians who's bewitched you Who's put a spell on you? Who's cast some foolishness into you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, let me ask you only this thing. Did you receive the Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where you became a new creation, where you received eternal life? Did, did that happen, your righteousness, your justification, by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He says, are you so foolish that you, after having begun in the Spirit, that you're now somehow being perfected in the flesh? Think about it, guys. How righteous are we in Jesus? Completely. How holy are we in Jesus? Completely. What can you do? What can I do to add to that righteousness? What can I do? What can you do to add to that holiness? We, at best, might be able to have behavior modification where other people see, oh, look at how righteous he is, or look at how holy he is, and yet on the inside, there's lack of love because there's unforgiveness and bitterness, and all there is is this hypocritical, pharisaical presentation of being something you're truly not, and yet Jesus wants to complete the work in us that he's begun. And the thought that is attached to this about not being carried away by various doctrines or strange doctrines as we read in verses 11 through 16 and it speaks of the reproach that Jesus um, uh, confronted uh, is, is this is, is, is we're being called to follow Jesus we're called to to stand in grace are we willing to stand in grace are we willing to stand in the love of Jesus even if it means reproach even if it means being cast out even if it means being rejected and here's the reason why I say this is because are you willing to say that Jesus is enough even if it means hardship, because the answer to the question is this. We will, and we only will, if we love what is true. If we love the truth. 
Remember, Corey, if you want to come up, we'll close with this. This kind of rejection is really what was happening to the Jewish believers that we're reading about, who this letter was written to. They were disowned by their families. They were rejected by their nation and their, their friends. And in light of this kind of rejection, we were told that we should offer the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks as we go forth, also suffering reproach, being rejected, being cast out, not being received by this world or the things of this world as we stand in God's grace, as we stand in God's love, the love of Jesus. The point is this. Love in any one of these avenues, guys, and, and, and many others that aren't mentioned here today, as a bond of perfection, love does not compromise the truth. What's the truth? This is the truth. Truth is not relative to what people say it is. It's not what the world says it is, which is ever-changing. The truth is here. It never changes. And, and, and love does not compromise the truth. Love stands in the truth in spite of the consequences. And I'm here to tell you, as we see the day of Jesus drawing near, more and more and more, if we love the truth, if we stand in the grace of Jesus Christ, we are going to be confronted by those who hate the truth, who don't love the truth. Love stands in the truth in spite of the consequences. And standing in and for the truth, let me tell you this as we close, is required to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's required. It's required. Even if and no one else around us is standing in the truth and standing for the truth, we must stand in the truth and love the truth. And Father, I pray, God, that these aspects, these various admonitions to love in these certain ways would be true in our life. That we would love one another. That we would love those outside the walls of this building. That we would love our spouse and our children. We would love you. That we would love you above all things. Father, do a work that it may be um, something genuine inside of us and not just, just outward actions, Lord, but a heart, Lord, that is in love with You and in love with others. Lord, there is nothing that we can do, we confess, to bring forth these kind of changes on our own, but we know, God, that You can. And so, Lord, we put our faith in You again today, our hope in You, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.